0: People are constantly believing that the markets have changed. And I do not believe that the market's changed. I mean, the markets may be controlled, you know, where there's outside influences, but that tends to just stretch the markets out. It's like a rubber band, it just stretches out and then they snap and you're right back into, what you would expect to see the markets do. So the trending environments, they may take longer to come to fruition, but when they come, they come back with vengeance.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, Hey everyone,
2: and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged. Where today, Alan Don and I are joined by Marty Bergen, the owner and president of Don Capital Management, which also makes him my boss for full disclosure. As part of our mini series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Marty, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we really have been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you are doing well. I know you just recovered from a little cold.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. It's been quite a while since I've been on the podcast. It's nice to be back and it's nice to be joined by Alan. I, Good to I speak to you done too. Really? With it's Alan been a while.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Now, before we dive into the various topics, uh, Marty, that we have planned for, uh, maybe just to set the stage for the conversation and to give our audience a little bit of context, do you mind just talking a little bit about um, the background of Don, and also perhaps you can share uh, kind of the the type of strategy that uh, that Don focuses on, uh, and kind of where we s- sort of stand today in terms of the business uh, as we head head into twenty twenty three.
0: All right. Well, I think everybody knows we're a trend follower and we've been around for quite a long time over 45 years. And William Dunn, who is a founder of Dunn Capital, is actually one of the fathers of the in- industry as a whole. And uh, he was actively involved in the reg- regulatory background for CTAs and managed futures. He was uh, the main researcher at Dunn originally. Uh, design the systems were completely systematic there are still elements that build design back in the early 70s that are in the system today and of course as technology has advanced and um, capabilities have grown uh, the systems are much more technologically advanced than they were back at that point in time but we essentially are still doing the same thing that Bill designed in the early 70s. The firm has transitioned. Bill is no longer involved in the day-to-day activities. Firm transitioned to me. Basically, my job is to not screw anything up and keep it moving forward. Uh, We've been growing assets fairly consistently. I think uh, our focus has been not only on the research but also on education and trying to educate the world, basically, and the advantages of systematic trading as a whole, but also trend falling as uh, an example of that. So that's where we are today. That's where I we think are we're today. we're about $1.4 billion dollars under management, and, and uh, consistently, the, the growth of the AUM has been very stable and consistent, especially over the last five years, and we're very proud of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great um, great context for, for our conversation. Now, Alan and I have created a, a list of topics that we're going to be uh, discussing, and, uh, and we'll kind of uh, go back and forth um, between between us. So, Alan, why don't you, as always, just uh, kick it off with the, the kind of the first topic we want to discuss with Marty?
3: Well, it's interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting point that you make that, that essentially the models that were developed in the 1970s are still kind of, the, their essence is still kind of evident in, in what you're doing uh, today, Marty. So, I mean, what is it about the, the markets? Do you think that there is a strategy like trend following that that, you know, that, that is so persistent in, in terms of the return stream that you can get from it over time? Where, where does that come from and what gives you confidence that it will be there going forward? Well,
0: I think it's over my head about where it comes from. It's, it's been very robust over the years. It's, it's basically momentum strategies have been been around since, uh, investing began and I think it's, you know, over the years, people have gravitated to this idea that momentum is dead or trend following is dead from time to time. And it's been proven over and over to be false narrative. I think the key to what we do is to not lose focus on trend following. So in other words, as time has gone and advancements have been made, I think a lot of our competitors have tended to gravitate away from trend following. Some of them have publicly said, you know, we, we don't believe in trend following anymore and we believe there's other things that will do a better job of capturing alpha And over time, maybe their performance has improved during some times, but then when the trend following is needed or that environment kicks in, they're no longer able to provide that alpha. And I think we've done a really good job of not losing focus on what we do, which is trend following, which has been proven over the last year that there's a lot of trend followers that did not make or people that proposed to be trim followers that didn't make outsized returns last year. Now, they may have been profitable, but I don't consider single digits outsized returns when in that type of trending environment, you should be really knocking the ball out of the park.
3: Sure. And I guess when you put that question to a lot of other managers, you know, it's, it's one perspective is, well, they may say, well, we still believe in trend following, but you have to balance that with keeping people invested in the strategy over time and making the, the strategy more di- digestible for, for, for people. And in that aim, th- there could be a, a benefit for smoothing out returns, adding some other strategies that, that can contribute performance in those trendless periods, while still maintaining the characteristics the that the broad risk profile of trend following. Is that something you've shied away from? And is that because you philosophically disagree with that? And, and But does that give a, a, big, a bigger challenge in terms of keeping people invested in, in, in kind of a pure trend strategy?
0: So it's not something we would shy away from. But I think it, it, there's an honesty that's involved. You can't say that you're a trend follower and you've made changes within the system that have gravitated away from trend and not fully disclose that. So I think there's a place for an all weather type strategy, and we've actually been doing research in that area. And at some point in time, we'll probably offer an additional strategy that may be moved more in line with all weather. But we won't be presenting it as a trend strategy. We'll present it as an all weather. You know, you want to present something where the investor has a clear choice that they're making. Now, I also believe that most investors are smart enough to realize that trend represents a portion of their portfolio of development, and they have other strategies that are built around that to balance their portfolio. It's not my job to come up with a strategy that answers all their needs. I don't want to be all things to all people. I mean, we do what we do. We do it very well, and that's
3: what I want to continue to offer. No, absolutely. Um and I mean, it, it, would you say that's the big, when you look at yourselves versus peers, is that the big difference Is, is that you would identify? Is that singular focus on trend uh, versus everything else?
0: Well, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's one of the things, but I think the other thing that differentiates us, so why did people start gravitating away from trend? Because they had problems being competitive in a performance environment, Correct. Well, I think there's other ways that you can add that performance in non-trending environments. One is through risk management and another is through portfolio development. And one of the things that we've really done is we've enhanced the risk management aspect of the program. I mean, one of the things we do is, is we got an exit strategy that's built into the program, which has been helpful over the years, but more importantly than that, we've adopted this adaptive risk profile where we actually change our risk target given the market environment. So in other words, we will add risk on in a market environment that's positive to trend falling, and we will reduce risk in market environments that aren't trending. And that's made a very big difference. So you know, even in non-trending times, we've been competitive from a performance standpoint. And that's our goal. We're trying to offer people an alternative, basically an insurance project or a hedge to their portfolio without costing them a lot of money. So during the times when the rest of their portfolio should be working fine, we should still be making some money. We're just not doing as well as equities might be doing or some of their other strategies. But then when times when everything else is falling apart, we tend to kick in and make a big difference in their portfolio. That's the goal. And the other goal is to educate people into the idea that this isn't a strategy that you move into when you see things going south, but this is a core holding that you should hold within your portfolio. Uh, We're almost impossible to time. I mean, I can't time it, and I probably know as much about it as anyone.
2: Yeah, no, I you know, let's stay on the topic about um focusing on on trend, uh, because I think that is a key difference. But also as as you say, uh Marty, that we we made some uh improvements, of course. And to some extent, I mean Cliff Asnes wrote a paper last year where this where he questioned whether the industry had become too concerned or focused on, on Sharp. But what I hear you say is that there are ways to improve trend following, you know, without necessarily deviating from trend following. So uh, how do you balance that uh, in your mind or or does it even, does it drive your view whether we should try to deliver trend following with a, with a, you know, in a nicer package, so to speak, with a bit higher sharp, where does, where, where would you draw the line between that and saying, no, we're just kind of trend because long-term we think that's a better strategy, even if it's a little bit more bumpier along the way.
0: Well, I I think the goal should always be to improve. And whether you measure that with risk-adjusted returns, sharp ratio, or some other measure drawdown, or ratio of performance to drawdown, I mean, there's all different ways of measure uh, performance or success in our business. I, I think there is too much focus on sharp ratio, although I also am not... A believer that it's an absolute return type strategy i mean there has to be some give and take i think the hardest thing to do from the research perspective is to not lose focus of what you're trying to do i mean it's easy to gravitate away from trend following when you see something that will enhance performance but you gotta ask yourself are you still doing what you say you're doing and We have always been very strict about wanting to perform during trending environments. I mean, we expect to have outside performance during those periods of time, and that's the goal of the strategy. Now, if we develop something that's different, that's fine. And if we think it's a good quality product, we'll offer it to the community but it will be offered as something different.
2: And is that what you feel that stood out last year, 2022? Obviously, performance stood out, but also was it just by all measures of account an incredibly trending year in your uh, opinion? Or, or, or was it, if I'm, in, if I'm trying to be objective here, was it also the fact that maybe the markets we trade compared to people who trade 200 markets were a little bit more trending perhaps, or maybe a combination of the two?
0: Um, there could be some of that, but I I think it's really just a focus on, I call 2022 a year of validation for trend followers, because I think a lot of people in the industry lost focus, started gravitating away from trend and the people that stayed the course and believed in the trend kept that as the focus of their systems. Were validated in their belief, and you know we had that core belief. We we knew that it was just a matter of time before this would fall back in favor. You have to play through the, the whole investment cycle, which we have done now, and I think not only has it been validated as a core strategy, but I think it's been recognized in the investment industry as 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 a focus going forward for for, for Portfolios.
2: Yeah, no, I was just going to follow up on that, actually, uh, because that's an interesting point. Uh, do you feel that this is a little bit different to 2009, where, again, on, on the back of a very strong year, I think a lot of us felt that, oh, wow, this is going to be an amazing time to get institutional adoption into the strategy, but it turned out to be a little bit harder. Do you think that there's something different this time around, maybe?
0: Yes, I think institutionals are recognizing things a little differently this time. I believe that 2022 was a year of inflation, and we haven't seen the recessionary trade yet, which I believe trend followers will also benefit from. I think the other thing that's different is now institutionals who in the past have felt like their allocation to fixed income was their insurance policy that obviously didn't work and they're seeing the value of trend following as part of that protection but i think the other thing that's going to happen is institutionals have also made very large allocations to private equity both in real estate private equity and equity markets now i believe there's going to be a lag in the pain that's going to be felt in those allocations because you know, the marks are basically internal. So people will tend not to show the bad performance for a while. It'll lag the markets and the liquid alts is going to be the hedge to the non liquid alts. And I think institutional, players are going to start realizing that and be looking to trend following and CTAs as that liquid hedge to their private equity allocations.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I actually think one thing you're you're absolutely right uh, about is the fact that uh, we've seen... In the last few years, uh, this term risk mitigation, and we're now seeing that parts of institutional portfolios are being labelled risk mitigation, and actually the core part of the risk mitigation portfolio, so to speak, is actually trend following. So I I, I agree with that, and 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 obviously we hope that uh, more people will um, will go down that path. Alan. Um, do you want to jump into one of your favorite topics?
3: Yeah, well, maybe, maybe just just to follow up on what we're talking about and the lead into research is just, you know, obviously you, you want to deliver returns in the, in a period of, of trending markets. Um, but you know, the other point that was picked up with the Cliff Asness paper was, you know, delivering returns in in a kind of crisis alpha periods or or, or equity down markets. And I'm just wondering, how does that play into your mind in terms of uh, thinking about the speeds of systems? And obviously, if you're kind of slower or medium to slower, you'll you know you'll pack you'll you'll stick with the trends, but might be a bit slower to respond at equity turning points. Um, so. Is that something you, you you worry about or is, there, is that an, an argument for having some element of more responsive uh, systems uh, as part of the suite or, or not? And is the focus primarily on on not worrying about those kind of short-term reversals and, and focus primarily on just capturing those big moves uh, in markets? So that's something that we've done a
0: lot of thinking about. And I think the main driver in that is has to do with drawdown. So what we've found over the years in research is the shorter time frames or shorter look back periods can mitigate drawdowns. But we also know that from a performance standpoint the performance is not as good. But it's become aware to us that institutional clients aren't necessarily looking for the knock the ball p- ball out of the park kind of performance, they're more concerned about that drawdown. So we are toying with the idea of restricting some of the look-back periods with the idea of being more flexible in terms of, just like you said, the shorter time periods to move quicker against equity drawdowns. Knowing that the overall performance is not going to be as good, but it may be providing a product that there's clients out there that are looking for. and then then again, it's just an idea of full transparency and and being upfront with people about what it is they're getting.
3: absolutely, and I suppose you hear people talking about the, you know the utility that you get from different programs or investment offerings, and the utility from that kind of return profile for certain types of investors may be greater than the utility of a, a higher return, but but with a less favorable uh, drawdown profile.
0: Right. So it's done. I mean, we've always been really focused on providing what we think is the best overall product, and maybe we haven't been as receptive to what the institutional investor was telling us. So. A lot of the institutions may not gravitate toward done just because of the type of product we offered, which was what we consider the best product over the long term that might not have met their needs. So we're now probably going to be more open to addressing what the investors are looking for, just making sure that it's clear what it is and and if it's a different product, which we feel isn't going to generate is large of a return over a long period of time, but it may
3: meet the needs of the client. Yeah, no, fair enough. And um, you touched on two um, enhancements, I guess you've made to the to the program over the years. One being the exit strategy, and the second being this adaptive risk profile. So clearly, this has been the kind of the result of of, of research. How do you, you know, when you do research? obviously when you do something looking in, in the back mirror presumably it it'll, it'll look better <laughs> you know and uh, how, how do you think about well okay it's, it, it it this will have would have worked better in the past how do you make the assessment that it's likely to continue to be better looking forward
0: well it's all about not data mining right so you don't want to trick yourself into believing something that isn't true and i think that's the hardest thing that we From a research perspective, we're very focused on that aspect of it. Uh, We want to be regimented. We want to be robust about our research. I can honestly tell you that the majority of everything that we get involved in from a research perspective doesn't pan out. I mean, when you've been around for 45 years, there's a lot of things that you've looked at over time and a lot of things that just, I mean, you, you tend to revisit things over time to see if maybe there's something that we missed that does improve it. But for the most part, most of the projects just don't pan out Uh, for us to have something like the adaptive risk profile. And and most of the time, these things grow out of research you're doing in a different area and you just kind of haphazardly fall on something that, Hey, wait a minute there's an idea, and you start moving forward with it, and,
3: oh, lo and behold, it works. Does, there, does the research tend to uh, come in response to a difficult period that you identified something that you're trying to solve, like the drawdown was very severe, or the give back in, in a number of individual trades seemed to be very large, so that might be better? Is, <laughs> I, is that what tends to happen? I think you tend to
0: work a lot harder when you're going through bad periods. But the truth be told, there's such a lag time in research that, you know, something may start during a period of time of poor performance, but by the time it's actually implemented, the markets have Mm -hmm. changed drastically. So it's just an ongoing thing. And, And I think the key to it is to maintain the communication and the dialogue internally within the group. And be constantly talking about different ideas and different things, and being open to ideas, um, both internally and externally. I mean, a lot of a lot of things come out of reading papers that are presented, and you might not end up implementing anything that has to do with the paper, but the paper may jog another idea that you have to
3: implement something. And you mentioned at the start how you know the essence of those initial original build on models from the 70s are, are still you know underpinning a lot of the, the current models um but it, I think you had the expression technologically more advanced. But, I mean, outside the execution and the technology and the way of running and, and monitoring all the systems, in terms of the signals, if you were to run those kind of 1970s models on today's markets, would they still be working? And how much better? Yeah. Are, they, they would, yeah. Okay. Yeah, trim following is not rocket
0: science. I mean, there's only so many ways to, you know, Determined trend it's it's time and noise. I mean, it's very straightforward So the reality is what generates the signal? Hasn't really changed Over the last hundred years It's the way you implement that signal that's changed. So the risk management aspect the data aspects uh, the trading aspects the portfolio development aspects I mean, think about it, in the early 70s, there's only a handful of markets that have futures contracts. So as time has changed and more and more futures contracts are available to you, that diversity is a real advantage to what we do. We look at markets and we look at markets that can provide a diversified uh, revenue stream to what we already have. That helps mitigate the risk. Now, there's a whole lot of markets out there that are have futures that aren't really viable for, for one reason or the other. Either they don't have the vol- volume to trade it easily, or the exchange they're traded on might not be something that you would trust, uh, whether they're regulated or non-regulated. We don't trade any futures contracts in China, for instance. Because I'm just not comfortable with the counterparty risk. And when you think about it, all our private net worth is involved in these systems. I mean, we invest in the same systems that are, we offer to our investors. And, you know, I don't want to take that risk with my own money. So, why would I take that risk with investors' money?
3: Fair enough. Um- you also mentioned one of the, the other enhancement was, or one of them was the exit strategy um, that 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 was significant. Is that is that like a profit take type enhancement, or is it kind of? It's not a stop loss
0: criteria. It's it's more of a profit taking type um, enhancement, where I, we see trend following's weakness is. You know, you you tend to get in the trend slowly and you get out of the trend slowly. And the idea is to get into the trend slowly, but accelerate getting out of the trend. Now, I will tell you there are times when the exit strategy is a benefit, and there's times when the exit strategy is not a benefit. And I would say over the last year it hasn't been a benefit. But it's, you know, the positives outweigh the negatives. So, we're not going to remove it just because of a short period of time where it didn't
3: provide a benefit. And maybe just one final point on this. Um, A lot of kind of the old school traders who started off running technical um, trading systems, you know had a solder portfolio is a bunch of individual trades so you get discrete signals in different markets and it it aggregated up into a portfolio but they were essentially managed yeah that's how Dunn was originally yeah whereas it kind of the more european perspective is often the you know looking at the overall portfolio and managing the risk from that perspective so did you was there an evolution then in dunn's uh history from that the original kind of approach to the more portfolio approach and was that I guess, as you added more markets, or how did that evolve?
0: Yeah, basically, in 2006, we gravitated away from looking at individual markets. So we would basically develop an individual market and then put all the markets together and come up with our risk sizing after the fact. In 2006, we decided to take a more portfolio view where we use the same parameter, picks on every single market we trade and the only thing we're interested in is what the effect of the overall portfolio is Um, by doing that it makes the system more robust less chances of data mining more chances of being adaptive to whatever the given market will be going forward and that's the key to everything we do is is you want to be robust and adaptive to the market conditions as they change because you have no way of predicting what's going to happen in the markets going forward. So we're basically counting on the system, the systematic automated nature of the system to adapt to whatever the market conditions are. I mean, thank God people don't have to rely on me sitting in my office going, oh, I see this going forward. Let's make this change. We're counting on the system to do that automatically.
2: Yeah, no, I just want to stay. I mean, you've covered a lot of ground. Uh, some of the things that I had uh, planned, but um, I, I want to stay with the number of markets a little bit because I do think that Don is maybe a little bit different in in that uh, group as well when it comes to markets traded. We've seen a lot of our peers embrace, you know, hundreds of markets traded. Um, so besides obviously liquidity as such, uh, I mean, do you do you have a view on on what you feel is a Realistic kind of, quote unquote, maximum number of markets that actually, you know, exists that gives enough enough diversification benefits uh, without giving up any liquidity concerns. I mean, is it is it sixty markets? Do you think nowadays, or is it a hundred? Where where do you where do you see that evolution?
0: Well, all that I can speak to is the way we view it internally. So we're comfortable with the number of markets we're trading. Um, we don't add markets just for the sake of adding markets. So I believe that a lot of our peers have gravitated to, to such a large number of markets, mainly from an AUM standpoint, uh, the larger, the number of markets, the easier it is to, to manage the portfolio but you don't want to add markets if it's not going to give you any real benefit. So we have added markets mainly from the standpoint of where we see a diversification benefit. So we've added some metals recently because we see that as markets that are different than what are in the portfolio. So I think we'll continue to move in that area. Now, I will say that from a diversification standpoint, I think people tend to put too much weight on it. I mean, there's studies that have been shown that it really doesn't take that many markets to be diversified. But it kind of brings us back to this new idea of people maybe duplicating CTAs through ETFs with very minimal markets. Those type of strategies work really well. I mean, the diversification during a normal market environment is not that big of a deal. But when things go south or something happens in the markets and it's not a normal market environment, all of a sudden that diversification difference plays a big role. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, everything works fine until it doesn't and i think we haven't gotten to that point where it doesn't
2: is that the main risk you see in these uh, replication strategies obviously it's been a topic that we've uh, discussed with uh, the other managers in this series but also generally it's been a a topic that we've talked about a a lot on the podcast is this cta replication it started out actually many years ago where people were just trying to put uh, create quote unquote cheap trend following models and 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 now they're doing linear regression based on the performance data. Do you have a, a a sense of of uh, one versus the other or they are they kind of a little bit the same in in, in the end?
0: I, th- I think it's hilarious the lack of due diligence on these type of strategies because literally everything that's presented in their presentations is all simulated data. There is no real trading, no real execution. Everything is simulated, and people are making investments decisions based on this data that's being provided. So there's no real true history. Not a long one, this, at least, that's for sure. No. And people are allocating lots of money to it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when you know there's a little stress added to the market and uh, people say oh how, how did we get involved in this or we didn't expect this to happen
2: we'll see yeah absolutely time will tell speaking of risk and drawdowns alan is that where you're heading next
3: yeah i mean um we've touched a little bit on on kind of some of the approaches you've made in terms of kind of drawdown and um um, also, the the portfolio uh, uh, dynamics as well. One of the topics that comes up a lot, uh, and we don't want to dwell on it too much. Again, I guess, is the whole dynamic versus static position sizing. But it, it sounds like you went through that kind of evolution um, in in that two thousand six shift more towards. What, what, prior to that, what was it? That, what, what, were position sized more individually and allowed to to run? Like the classic the classic trend follower, whereas you know if if the volatility picks up, that that contract will have a a large contribution to the overall portfolio, and then that, did you decide to kind of move away from that? So
0: dynamic risk sizing, which is one of those topics that I mean people can just lose hours discussing. and people in the industry have very, very emotional ties to both ways of doing it. Uh, I'm not emotional about it. I have no problem with people that use the old style methodology of sizing positions where basically you enter the position based on the volatility and you don't adjust that position until you trade out of the position or you roll the position and you may adjust for volatility at that time again. I don't have a problem with that methodology. It, It has a place in trend following. I mean, the whole idea is that as the volatility picks up, then the trend should be stronger and you should want to stay in that position and you've added risk automatically to your positioning. But what we do feel is institutional investors and from our comfort level, if we know that the risk has changed and we're targeting a risk dynamic, we want to adjust the portfolio to that targeted risk so we are going to dynamically size our positions on a daily basis and one of the things that we will take into account for that is going to be volatility we're also going to look at correlations and trend uh, strength and we're going to put all plug all that into the the risk dynamic of the portfolio. So we're a true believer of dynamic sizing. Uh, I don't have any problem with people in the in- industry that aren't. And I, th- I think there's a place for that.
3: And obviously, you're, you're looking to generate outsized returns when markets trend, but could you generate even more of a kind of a positive skewness, uh, more of a convex return profile? If you didn't um, falsize the position, I guess that's the, the, the other thing. Yes, I think yeah. I, I, absolutely. I think that's true. Yeah.
0: Okay. But you but you're giving up something, right? You're giving up control over the risk. So you have to measure one against the other. And, and I think if you look at CTAs, I think the skew has come down as an industry as more people in the industry
3: are dynamically sizing positions i guess you're kind of capturing two different things one is trends and then another volatility expansion is another feature that that, yes and if you have that more or more static position sizing you can get exposure to two factors and obviously people i guess will will, will manage the the positions at, at different speeds i mean outside of that. You know is volatility targeting the main way you think about risk in the portfolio or is exposure no. or margin no i think the
0: biggest focus that we're looking at is a correlation of markets okay so the cross-market correlations we think have a bigger factor on risk than than the volatility
3: okay and is that something then that you you know you mentioned kind of shying away from discretionary inputs but can can there be periods where you can overly rely on on correlation you know if you have you know historically we had a negative correlation say between bonds and equities you know in the last decade in particular if you believe that correlation could you kind of be overly leveraged on on kind of bin long bonds and equities in those periods
0: well of course but so there's two different things going on there you got to the data will tell you one thing and you got to take your emotion out of, you may believe that there's a correlation going on, but if the data tells you something different and the correlations have changed, then obviously the system needs to gravitate with that change. So that's why it's important that it's a hundred percent systematic. So you let the data dictate, you don't, it's not our interpretation or what we believe correlations are it's what actual correlations are yeah
3: how do you think about like what's the right look back for say if you want to measure the volatility of a market or if you want to let measure the correlation between markets we think those look back periods are
0: constantly changing and so the way the system is designed it it gravitates through shorter and longer periods of look back and we 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 don't restrict what that look back could be now what i will tell you Is it will never take the really short, like a week type look back because it just isn't profitable over any length of time. And the cost associated with trading such short lookbacks basically eats up the profit. You know, we haven't decided to go that route where we want to be competitive in a in a shorter you know, high-frequency-type trading environment. So we're we're comfortable with where we are, which is the medium- to long-term-type trend following. I think there's a place for shorter-term windows, but it's a very expensive and low-return-type environment to get involved in. So there are people that, such as Citadel and some of the other firms that are involved in short term trading or high frequency type of environment that make money consistently but you know the cost of doing that is excesses and you know i'm not going to try to compete with that
3: nils
2: you know, I mean, it's just sort of uh, expanding a little bit uh, on that, but in a slightly different direction. Another thing that is very much determined on in terms of the time frame you trade uh, is often linked to then the capacity uh, that you have in your in your strategies. And of course, even in with the trend following space, uh, we see quite a lot of uh, dispersion in terms of size of managers. And so, I'm I'm curious how you think about uh, capacity, how you think about Dunn's capacity. Uh, what might uh, give you a clue that we're getting close and of course that may also tie into the other question uh, or topic that we've been discussing with with um, with our colleagues and that is you know fees uh where maybe and this is kind of my own um observation that maybe during the times when trend following during say 2015 through 19, where there were some institutional inflows, but where they were also able to get some very good deals from people uh, offering very low flat fees, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and perhaps now some of those managers who took in a lot of money at very low fees uh, are, are, are kind of regretting that uh, to some extent. So again, capacity fees, would love to hear your thoughts about that uh, from, from Dunn's point of view, but also from how you look at the industry.
0: So I think one of the advantages that, you know, Dunn has is the fact that we're kind of a niche player. Um, we're not large. So capacity is not of a concern to of ours. And it brings me back to what I said earlier about 2022 is a year of validation because we were one of those firms that had been approached by a number of institutions of offering a product at a very low fee level. You know, back at a time when, yeah, AUM would have been nice to be able to add easily, but we weren't willing to sacrifice kind of what we built ourselves as, as a zero management fee, incentive fee only firm. We've always prided ourselves as being client centric. So we weren't willing to go that route. And I think it, was a big benefit to us later that, you know, during this good period of time, we were able to benefit from it. You know, I think there's a place for potentially offering a product from an institutional standpoint that may not be, which we talked about earlier, may not be what you think is the best product available, but it may be something that is providing a need for an investor or a client. And at that point, you may negotiate a different kind of fee structure for that particular investor. But I think from the industry as a whole, there's a lot of very large trend followers that are trading you know, $20 billion. So Dunn is not at that point. I believe that we're comfortable where we are and we're comfortable if we were to double our AUM. I think if we reached a point where we were touching on five billion, we'd probably pull back a little bit and and readdress where we were. Bill used to always say that if you ever had a capacity issue, you just raise the fee and that'll take care of it. Um, I don't think I'm <laughs> looking to do that route. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the, the truth be told, there's a lot of people that are doing uh, what we do. So there's a lot of competition out there. I feel like the way we do it is just is better than most. So I feel comfort, our position in the industry as a whole.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Another thing, um, before I turn it over to Alan, Another thing that actually came up in uh, one of our conversations, uh, this was with the Swedish firm, Lynx, because they are also a little bit similar to Dunn, meaning they're off the beaten path. They're not in one of these financial centers, um, and Stuart, Florida is not a financial center. I think we can agree on that. How do you think about location? Uh, Do you think about that as being an advantage for what we do or a disadvantage? How do you think about that?
0: I see it as a non-issue. I mean, being where we are, it makes it less convenient for institutions to see us and talk to us. But in this day and age of technology, it's it's really a non-issue. I mean, it's easy to get on a Teams call or a Zoom call and and talk to people. It's easy enough to get on an airplane and, and travel to see people. People want to do the due diligence. Most people are very comfortable when they come and see our offices and what we're doing they understand why we are where we are and uh, you know Stewart is the worldwide headquarters for dunn uh, we were in florida before everybody else started gravitating here and you know now basically every major bank in the world is opening offices up 45 minutes south of us in palm beach so uh, we were just ahead of our time
3: Just wanted to follow up, I mean, on a point around, I suppose, related to markets traded and then I suppose specifically liquidity, you mentioned not trading Chinese futures, I think from the counterparty risk perspective. So in terms of kind of market selection and then specifically around liquidity, what's your thinking on that now? And I mean, specifically from, from the perspective that people present, you know, about concerns in some markets with respect to liquidity recently you know obviously with the gilt market we had exaggerated moves um every so often it appears there's kind of a gap move say like cable earlier this year and then you had the issue with the treasury market in 2020 so uh, you know obviously you've been involved in markets and very close to markets uh, for for going back over a number of decades so when you look at the liquidity mo- profile of markets are you comfortable with that and uh, which ones obviously have you chosen not to be involved in from from a liquidity perspective.
0: So one of the things we've looked hard at is LME because of you know what they did with the nickel earlier this year and the disconnect there. So we are currently as we call it we have them in the penalty box and we're waiting to see how they respond to the to the investigation and what they implement to improve their marketplace. That's a tough one because you think about it, it's the oldest exchange in the world. You wouldn't have thought that this would be a problem. Um, But clearly there was some internal, what I would call, corruption going on. And they reacted according to what they thought was best for them, but it wasn't best for the markets as a whole. Hopefully, they will implement some of the things that need to be done, and we will start trading those markets again. But the volatility profile of markets is one of the reasons why we do not trade. The trading that we do here at Dunn is not automated. So in other words, we have traders that actually execute every order that we implement. Now, they have a lot of tools at their disposal, in other words, algorithms and different things that they can utilize in the trading, but they supervise or oversee the trading so that when you have a a volume profile that's broken, if you're using an automated system, you can really get hurt in those environments And I think some of those environments present themselves just for that reason. Uh, It's basically the computers taking advantage of other computers. And I feel like if you have a trader
3: that's supervising that process, it mitigates that risk. So that's just kind of managing the execution of the algorithm, or or, or, or is that kind of...
0: Yeah. Right. When you're looking at medium to long-term trend following, I mean... The execution itself becomes less important. I mean, you're not looking for that pennies at that execution point. What you're looking for is execution that is that is controlled, and you don't take a bath at that point. And that's when you got experienced traders that kind of control that process.
3: That's a big advantage. And um, so that's something. I mean, I. Are you kind of uh you monitoring those traders to to assess their entry or you know against a certain slippage budget or or how do you think about that uh we may we definitely monitor the
0: slippage uh, we get reports all the time. I can pleasantly say that most of our slippage is positive in nature, so a big hand
3: goes out to our traders <laughs> very good and um, just, uh, I mean, there's one other topic I wanted to delve into, and we kind of talked about it earlier a little bit, and, and it's kind of the role of trend, you know, within a larger portfolio. Um, and you mentioned how maybe, you know, thinking about being more responsive to investor requirements or, or, or demands or, or around that. But I suppose there's a, there's a few questions that you often get when you're representing managed features to to investors, and you know, um, so much just. Put them at you, uh, like one. You know, should we think about managed futures and trend following as a, is it a return generator or 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 a, or a portfolio diversifier or is it protection? And then in terms of funding the allocation, should it be funded more out of the equity side or the, or the bond side? If you got those mm-hmm. questions from from investors, which I'm sure you probably have at some point, how do, how do you address those?
0: Well, so first thing we start out is it should be a core allocation. So. I assume under most scenarios, it's a part of their alt budget. And I would think that it would be funded equally out of their uh, fixed income versus equity. I think in the past, it was probably just funded out of equity. I think moving forward, people will start looking at it as a funding out of fixed income since uh, this will probably be a replacement for part of that fixed income allocation moving forward. The other thing is, I think most institutionals will look at it from a standpoint of, you know, they got a convexity type allocation. They may have, you know, a long, short type allocation, and then they'll have a trend following allocation. And the three of those things come together to form their kind of, their alt budget potentially. Now the convexity thing or the black swan, the tail risk hedging that they're doing, they know that that's going to cost them money basically for the majority of the time until it kicks in and provides that benefit. Whereas I think they'll look at the trend falling portion of the budget to not be a negative drag on the portfolio, that it'll be an overall positive from a performance standpoint, It just won't be performing as well during bull markets as their equity allocation, but it's an important allocation because it provides that alpha, depending on how you define alpha, but provides that alpha during crisis
3: environments, right? When a second topic on this kind of question, I mean, you mentioned private equity and private markets in general and I suppose when you're if you're sitting in the allocator seat you might say well the reason for allocating to private equity and this was the argument obviously there's a some kind of illiquidity premium so you could say well you can get public market returns plus an illiquidity premium so whatever that is so allocators would have a way of thinking about what the returns would be how how should people think about the returns from managed futures and the potential returns from managed futures and trend following um, to think about, well, okay, how much should I allocate, and and um, in what area of the portfolio is it all driven by what what has been produced historically, or you know, is there anything else that people should any other kind of process to, to to try and think about what what returns are achievable? Well, so I think that is an analysis that they have to do internally.
0: Uh, to determine what it is they're trying to accomplish and to make sure they have an allocation that's large enough to get them there. So what we see is they tend to under-allocate to the strategy so that when it does kick in and works, it doesn't really provide them any benefit because they didn't allocate enough to it. Now, let's go back to the whole private equity uh, allocation and be perfectly honest. I mean, why are they allocating the private equity? Because it's a smooth performance because it's not real. There's no true mark to market. And that's kind of the negative that they get with allocating to CTAs or trend following because it is very transparent and it is marked the market. So they see that volatility, that volatility is reported constantly. And, you know, that doesn't provide a lot of comfort. Although it's a true, I mean, it's a liquid alt. So they know exactly where their values are on any given day, and it's always available to them. Whereas the private equity is not. I mean, the private equity they set aside, it gives them comfort because they never see a big swing, but that money's not available. They don't have any ability to get their hands on it. And when it starts going south, it might be smooth and consistently going south, but there's nothing they can do about it. And I think what you're going to see moving forward is they're going to be allocating to trend followers because when that private equity is getting down month after month after month, they'll have the trend following hedge that will be generating performance
3: during, yeah. You know, basically during a recessionary period. I know we're moving up in time, so I'll, I'll hand it back to Niels. I know there's a couple more. I'm Niels yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. There's a few more topics that uh, we wanted to cover with you, Marty. So one of the things actually that we have brought up with people and just to uh, hear your thoughts on that, for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, uh, this was an area that didn't require too much work because cash management was a thing where you just had to try and stay... Or minimize the drag from these uh, zero or negative uh, interest rates. In today's world, interest rates are not zero anymore. Share with us how you think about the cash management part of the uh, of of the funds that um, that that Don manages, and um, yeah, and how how you do that.
0: So we think that's really important. So most CTAs or managed futures products, I think, have overlooked the cash management aspect of it. I mean, a lot of times they just leave it in the hands of the brokers uh, or just buy treasuries and let it sit. We've been very active because historically there's been counterparty risk associated with brokers. So we tried to mitigate the amount of money that we have with a particular broker, especially in clearing. So we, we have a firm that we... Basically, own ninety or forty nine percent of the equity of in New York that manages all of our cash, and over the last two years, the value of that has really come to the forefront just because of how poorly fixed income is done. I mean, you had a lot of ETFs and mutual fund bond investments that were down 16 to 20% over the last year. So managing that cash becomes a very key component to the process. And we rely on experts to basically do it. The reason we use a firm that we have some equity invested in is so that we have control over that process or at least transparency into the process. So I see every confirmation for every purchase or sale that's done in the fixed income sector and we keep a very close watch on it and it's bode well for our investors and i feel comfortable with the way we handle it
2: yeah and of course uh, probably worth mentioning that obviously we're not the only cta that they do this work for they do it for right. some of our friends and competitors uh, or peers uh, in the industry as well so uh, so so yeah, when
0: we went when we decided to go this route, the whole idea was for them to be providing this service not just to us but anybody else in the c t a space that wanted to avail themselves of this yeah service
2: one more thing um was maybe something that um. Yeah, I don't know exactly how to to uh, what what to call this kind of question, but I'm curious anyways about if there's something you hear people say about trend following and every time you hear it you say no, I definitely disagree with that. Some kind of description of of what we do as an industry where you say, "No, that's just not something I <laughs> agree with." Is there anything that comes to mind you've heard over the years again and again?
0: It it seems like over and over people tell us that trend following is dead, right? So, I mean, I've heard that so many times over the years that it just makes me laugh. And I think, well, we'll see. And uh, there again, validation during the last year for the fact that people are constantly believing that the markets have changed. And I do not believe that the markets change. I mean, the markets may be controlled. You know, where there's outside influences that control the markets, especially equity markets. I mean, you have the Fed, you have government intervention. You have a lot of things going on that influence markets. But that tends to just stretch the markets out. It's like a rubber band. It just stretches out and then they snap and you're right back into what you would expect to see the markets do. So... The trending environments, they may take longer to come to fruition, but when they come, they come back with vengeance.
2: Yeah. Now now that we also have Alan here as, a, as an allocator, I'm curious uh, to ask you the question, though, Marty, and that is, if you were an allocator and you go into these conversations with managers, what's the one or two things that you would, Definitely ask the manager that you may not, may, maybe you don't see um, a lot of allocators coming in to uh, to visit. Um, ask.
0: I, I think the biggest thing I would be focused on is style drift. I mean, you want to make sure that you're getting what you're looking at or what your ex- expectation is. So, for instance, I've seen a lot of managers that have really good historical numbers but I know by following them that they're no longer doing what they were doing when those historical numbers were generated. So are you really buying those historical numbers or are you buying something different? And that's the big concern from an allocator standpoint, know what you're getting. And, and you know, most managers aren't going to answer that question and there's no way for you unless you're on the inside, looking at the changes that have happened in code, there's no way that you can know whether that's
3: happened or not.
2: I should ask you, Alan, whether you agree with that question as an allocator.
3: I do absolutely. know that that it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I mean, it, it. You know, there are uh, Marty touches on style drift. I mean, that can come in different shapes or form. It can be, you know managing the volatility profile that's you know that's one thing or it can be just adding you know some beta which would be another i mean you would pick up the latter over time in the numbers but you mean obviously it wouldn't be evident in in the full track record so no absolutely i I mean it is it it, 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 uh, as we've said before managers will always have narratives it's the allocator's uh, job to try and see beyond the, the, the 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 narrative
2: yeah Absolutely. Final question, Marty. As we are in at the beginning of 2023, well, what are you most excited about when you look uh, into the new year? Um, and do you have any concerns uh, for the new year?
0: Uh, no concerns. Um, I'm excited to see. I really believe we're transitioning currently through from a inflationary trade to a recessionary trade, which are two very different animals. So from a trend-following perspective, there's going to be some pain related to that transition. I think we're seeing some of that early this year. I don't have a problem with that. I'm comfortable with that. I think the other thing is to see the growth and the development of Dunn in particular and the industry as a whole, because I believe that the industry is really coming into its own Um, I think this is different than 2007, 2008. I think people are starting to understand the value of a core allocation to this type of strategy. And I want to see it be more accessible to all parts of, of the investment community, not just institutionals, but the retail clients. I'd like to see the fee compression happen so that it becomes profitable for retail as opposed to having the fees so high that people aren't really making any money at it. So we're going to become more mainstream, and that's what I'm looking forward to, is the industry as a whole becoming more mainstream, being more accepted.
2: Good stuff, Marty. On that note, we're going to wrap up this fascinating conversation. Marty, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. We hope we can do this sometime again in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes of this episode and all the other resources you can find on on our website. And not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you and to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.